Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. We have concluded Tactical Trauma 2019 and reassembled our expert panel to bring you the very best and highlights from our very exciting day. And a big thanks to our organizing committee who have done, again, an exceptional job of uh, mobilizing a fantastic tactical operational medicine conference in Europe. So it's uh, great, great raving uh, reviews and applause. So without further ado, we're going to introduce our expert panel. I'm Mike Klumpner. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Klumpner. My name is Mike Gloria. I'm on Twitter at, at Recess Padawan. Hi, I'm MJ Slubbert, and you can find me on Twitter at MJ Slubbert. Hi, Leilani Doyle. You can find me on, at tw- on Twitter at <laughs> Doyle Leilani. Hi, I'm Mark Forrest. You can find me on Twitter at, at OBDOP. And Mike Abernathy, you can find me at, at FLTDOC1. And there are a lot of themes of the day. And one of the themes of this podcast is we have uh, an innumerable <laughs> number of mics. Yes. So Mike <laughs> Abernathy, you started out the morning as our moderator. What were some of your takeaways, reflections, and uh, how did you start the day off? Oh, it was great. You know, we had not a real late night last night. Really just started off. Good crowd. Our first up was Mike Loria, who spoke about, what was the exact title? The Essence of Tactical Medicine. Essence of Tactical Medicine. And yeah, very interesting and very well received. What do you think the key points on that? Uh, I think the key points on the, the, what I was really trying to get across in the talk is that we get preoccupied with things like individual pieces of kit. And as the TCCC and TECC guidelines continually expand, we get obsessed with protocols and we get obsessed with the way things are going in terms of sort of clinically. But overall, as things seem to morph and evolve, we go to different places. We have tactical medicine in the civilian side and the military side. I think what we missed is an, an overall set of guiding principles that will direct us and be sort of our tactical moral compass through adding different pieces of equipment kit, the kind of research we need to do, how we incorporate things, and all that other stuff. And what it came down for me was for three relatively straightforward concepts that are essentially universally applicable and will drive things like individual techniques and tactics going forward. So so how do you recommend that at an organizational level or at an agency level we start to implement some of these ideas? Yeah, so I think that the three concepts that I was trying to get across in the talk were essentially speed, simplicity, and coordination of care. In a tactical medical operation, what generally things boil down to is how you can do those three things best. And I think if you're always asking that question of how can we do those three things best, then that will eventually guide you to the correct answer in terms of training. You know, are we training people? Are they getting faster at what they can do? Are the times to interventions that we know that work getting faster? Are the times to definitive care faster? Or are we just delaying things? Are we making things more complicated than they need to be? If we know certain pieces of equipment don't work very well or don't work very well under tactical conditions, why are we carrying them? Why are we using them? And is everything that I'm doing actually moving toward coordinating the care that my patients need? Or is what I'm doing in terms of focusing more on interventions that are not necessarily important, not moving toward transporting the patient, not moving toward getting them toward definitive care, mm-hmm. really what I'm, what I'm doing at this point. So I think if you, if you continually ask yourself those three questions, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're looking to buy, no matter whether we're operating, no matter how you're training, if everything focuses on those three, what I think are very salient points, 
And I think you're always going to be speed, right simplicity, way. and coordinated care. Yep. Speed, simplicity, and coordination of care. That's a recurrent theme that I, I see is the idea of simplicity. Again, time and time again, when you know the shit really hits the fan, you know it's just doing the basics well, and that's what's going to happen. And you know, I just saw that in several of the lectures. Yeah, yeah, and, and it translates really well to civilian care as well, right? It's not just um, for tactical medicine. And I think we find a lot of these things that came out of military experience and tactical medicine is really quite applicable to civilian EMS and in-hospital care. It's very easy to make things super complicated with all of the protocols and equipment and things we produce that when actually it's an emergency situation, what you need to do is have those three easy steps, right? Mm. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I got from your lecture was that we're not the mission. Mm, We'd like to think we are, especially when we start to see injured patients. Oh my God, now it's medical, especially if it is you know, died down within the, the tactical context. But we're still not the mission. We're part of a bigger team, and we need to understand the tactics and movement of that bigger team and, and mm-hmm. integrate within that. I think one of the things that I wanted to sort of mention but forgot to highlight was, and I have, I've had misinterpreted in the past, is in terms of simplicity, you have to do the basics well, and that's something I went over in there, and that those basics create the foundation for what you're trying to do. That does not mean, however, that pushing new technologies and pushing interventions into the field uh, and out of a hospital are necessarily a bad thing. That said, when you're trying to implement them in a time-sensitive environment, if you have not refined your procedure for Reboa, if you still are planning on bringing an entire trolley full of you know, sterile towels and the whole nine yards to some austere remote resuscitation area, it's not going to go very well. So you can still do advanced modalities mm-hmm. in the field, but you still have to boil them down, train them well, be fast at them, etc. That said, as well, the corollary to the speed part is it's about speed to meaningful intervention. If you're five blocks from a hospital in an urban area, that means just getting them to the hospital. If you're in the middle of Africa, that may mean doing an austere damage control resuscitation, getting someone as quick as you can to an intervention where they can get transfused, or doing something like Reboa in the right settings. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more than just being fast and getting them to a, a hospital, so to speak, or being simple and just using bandages and gauze. Now, Mike, some of the concepts that you laid out led very naturally into Mike Klumpner's talk following on medical best practices at mass casualty events. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of the stuff that I follow in that talk I learned from flying on the helicopter for almost 10 years. And just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference. Oh, yeah. And and sometimes, you know, showing up with a bunch of really cool stuff. And like I always told people, and I learned this from, from my boss, Jim Mobley, a long time ago, the best treatment we were bringing to all of our patients was jet fuel. And we, we needed to remember that. And so that's where I've always gone back and said, you know, we need to look at these events simplistically because they they are incredibly chaotic. Uh, There's a variety of different threats when it comes to hostile mass casualty events. It's not just active shooters, it's mass stabbers, vehicles of weapon, explosive devices, chemical devices. I mean, it's the perpetrator's imagination. And so that was kind of one thing is looking at uh, what what type of injuries we're seeing, but then looking at our our practices and saying, are they evidence-based? And that's just, I think that's a simple question that we all have to ask ourselves, but 
unfortunately, in, in EMS, I think that we um, still are, are in our infancy, if you want to consider that, because you know EMS has really only been around since the mid-70s, and we still feel like we have something to prove. And we can't show up to hospitals with uh, dirty trauma patients. We've got to show up showing that we used every skill that we were taught in paramedic school, and we're literally killing patients by doing that. And, and we've gotten away from looking at evidence-based practices, and when we start really delving into what we do for trauma patients, there's not a lot of evidence to support some of the things that we do. I think it's really interesting on a number of the other presentations. I mean, take Tom Koenig with the stab wounds to the neck. I, mean, mm-hmm. I loved it when he said, sometimes I'll arrive and see the wound and say, let's go. You know, and, and we're just going to pack this, put pressure on, and let's go. And this is for the attending vascular surgeon that's yeah, responding that's, pre-hospitally, just a primer audience. He's going to do the definitive repair, but he, this is not the place, and not. he's keeping it really simple. And obviously, we've done similar things, resuscitative hysterotomy, resuscitative thoracotomy. We've simplified them down to the absolute bare minimum that we need to do to keep this person alive. And it comes back to the, the, the John Hines, you know, you know, honourable intentions. Am I re- really making a difference or am I just delaying definitive care and we need to be somewhere else? I like the idea you were saying, and uh, what was the figure? 95% of all the mass casualty things, the standard triage, uh, triage methods tags are never used. Felt, yeah. They don't even use them. Mm-mm. You know, I can remember triage tags for the last 30 years. And yeah, when, again, when it's real, does it make a difference? No. Yeah. Now, time and again, now triage really got beat up during the conference. It did. I thought one of the most salient ways to describe it is, you know, you know, best intentions, uh, you know, are really going to meet their test with first contact with the enemy and triage and well-formulated casualty collection points and things along those lines are examples of such scenarios. Yeah, I think we've heard it again and again from people who've been in that situation probably as a participant or a concert goer or you know and then find themselves having be to be part of this medical team that Jeff actually said in, in yesterday as well that mm-hmm. sorry triage went out of the, the door and you know one of our colleagues also involved in the Boston bombings and that's what she said as well you know formal triage did not happen uh, it's basically like you said Mike they're red or dead mm-hmm yeah, and another interesting point, we're, we're, we're taught, hey, get the walking wounded, the walkie-talkies, say, hey, come to me, come to me, and we throw them off in a corner and we forget about them. But Mike brought up the point that the, some of them can be extremely gravely injured, that they're basically giving themselves their own adrenaline dump, keeping themselves alive mm-hmm. until they get to, they're literally running for their lives, and then once they're in safety, relative safety, they're, they're, they lose their adrenaline dump and then subsequently die on us. Yeah. I'd heard about that in the Manchester bombing as well, that a lot of the patients that they thought initially were Pry 3s, Green, Charlie, whatever you want to give them, that they had to keep an eye on them because, again, these were kids. They're young. We know that they maintain their blood pressure until they die. Yeah. So if we use traditional triage, we may not have found... Uh, the initially the gravely injured because they compensated until they didn't. Yeah, that picks up on another theme from yesterday on shock tolerance. Mm-hmm. And people have different thresholds for shock tolerance. Yeah. yeah. I so, actually thought one of the most interesting things that Mike brought up during the talk, well, a lot of interesting things, but was it the FDNY new triage mechanism, yeah. basically penetrating injuries, gunshot wounds, etc., oh, yeah. between the clavicle Clavicles. and yeah. the pelvis, In the immediately red. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else yeah. is either dead or alive. Yeah. That's it. Right. Yeah. Headshot or extremities, right. Yeah. 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 
that's, that's yeah, the, it. the literature shows that you have a limited time to get him to the hospital. So, right. you know, prioritizing their evac from the scene is tantamount. But now switching gears from our human patients to our canine patients, there were a tremendous amount of learning points in our breakout session with some of our law enforcement officers and the medical care related to our canine partners. The, the canine session was, was really, really good. It was, it was different. It gave a whole different perspective to things in several ways. One, in terms of they very rarely would be our priority. There's human beings here dying. But then if this is your partner that you work with every day, it, that makes no difference. This is your partner. And, and hearing the guys who, who work with these dogs on a day-to-day basis, and they're going to do their absolute utmost. And then it got down to the practicalities of even if you do work with this dog and it's your best buddy, he's not going to be your best buddy when he's shot. Mm. but he's injured he's in pain and so muzzling early is obviously so important yep. just to protect everyone including the handler and then other simple practical things like tourniquets won't work on a dog mm. you know a, a windless tourniquet because of the plastic strip will mm. not fit around the right. leg yeah. um, and then I never realised that uh, the dogs have a fenestrated oh. mediastinum and oh. it's basically one chest cavity so if you get a, a tension in pneumothorax one side you're going to have it the other side too so. So let's just um, pause there. There's so much to take away. So one, situational awareness, right? Um, with your canine colleagues, even though they're your best friends, muzzling them early if they're injured is of tantamount importance. Now, uh, our anesthetist consultant, for our EMS audience, can you ex- help explain the pathophysiology? So a dog or a canine has a fenestrated mediastinum. So what are the implications for tension pneumothorax. Help us understand that a little bit better. Yeah, I think it's like what Mark said, the chest cavity is actually not like in a human divided in two. So if we get an injury on one side, whether it's blunt or a penetrating injury, we can get a collapsed lung pneumothorax on that side. And if it becomes under tension, then, you know, all of our um, blood vessels and our heart and everything gets compressed. But it does move over a little bit. So I assume we have a little bit more time then a canine who has one chest cavity. So if, even if they get a unilateral stab or anything, both sides of their chest, their lungs collapse and they start filling up. And I assume their heart just gets squashed in yeah, the middle. Yeah, you think from so, both sides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, but hopefully the good thing about it is you can make a finger thoracostomy or put in the chest tube on either side and you should fix both sides' problem. Yeah, so the obstructive shock can be worse with tamponade facility yeah, or attention pneumothorax. Yeah, faster as well, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they're immediately going to have no lungs, whereas we might function on one lung. Mm. If we're dealing with a simple pneumothorax, they're, they're going to have two straight away. Now, how about pain control for our canine colleagues? A little bit different than for humans. Yeah, I think we were all quite surprised when, when ketamine took a hit. You know, ah. we were yeah, the, 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 yeah. Not the Swiss the Army knife. Oh, no. The magic bullet. Yeah, so uh, that was very interesting. The ketamine is not the analgesic of choice because of hypotonus and, and agitation and salivation. And in fact, morphine was morphine IM at quite high dose with a, mm-hmm. a typical Alsatian, a large, large animal. Uh, 30 milligrams to oh. 50 milligrams IM. Was the, was the dosage recommended? But it's still okay if your cat is your partner, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay for cats. Mm-hmm. So. Tactical cats. Yeah. Yeah. Talking, so I'm talking, totally for that. Are we talking cat. lion or are we talking? <laughs> One of the issues that we're having to deal with in the states is it is a felony in most states to provide advanced life support care to animals. If you are not a veterinarian, Absolutely. you are you will go to jail. That's really interesting because, again, I operate an animal shelter uh, with my wife. And over the years, I do quite a bit of veterinary care. Uh, But, yeah, yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, just having recently taken my pre-hospital board exams, 
So the definition of licensure is when the state allows you to do things which otherwise would be illegal. So typically what we do or perform on a, a regular basis may be considered assault when I'm sticking tubes uh, into places where they don't normally belong. Or fingers. Or fingers, mm -hmm. yeah. So on that parallel to animals, you know, our, our training not necessarily is on veterinary care. So right. I appreciate that despite the best intentions. I had to put that disclaimer in there for our folks. But I mean, there are, there are, there are working to change laws in states to allow EMS providers who have had basic veterinary care to be able to perform. Endotracheal intubation in dogs is very easy and, yeah. and, and some other things. So, but. And doing the basics, like you know, giving yeah. them a bit of oxygen. And you can do that. You, can, you yeah. can do that, but once you do anything advanced life support, then you're practicing veterinary medicine without a license. Wow. Mm. I love the converse, though, that because vets can treat us. <laughs> well, but plus the idea too that yeah, this this care rendered in the field certainly if there's no other human victims and is attached to animals as people are again they think partner this dog's an officer and and all that again they they are animals and human beings should and always have priority mm -hmm. uh, but in the case of you know isolated injured or you have enough resources absolutely you're going to take care of this animal. One thing I want to add real quick, there was a really cool lesson that I learned from a active shooter event that we had in North Carolina. <clears throat> the tactical medics immediately deployed, um, they got uh, the kiddie pools from our hazmat trucks and filled them with ice and water. And it was because we were running so many bomb dogs through the buildings that they would have the dogs come out and lay in the ice pool for about five or ten minutes. Because if a dog's panting, he's not he's not sensing any explosives. So as soon as they came out, they got oh. ice down okay. and wow. then they got put back in play. And so... Some tactical medic had heard about it and yeah. put, and it worked. So it was that magic. is an absolute direct parallel to firefighter rehabilitation, which yeah. is, of course, a normal part of our practice. Yeah. Interesting. Oh. Can't function when you're overheated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I love when we always dig into the psychosocial aspects of uh, providing medical care. So we had some interesting points about anger related to caring for our own patients, as well as some interesting learning points about PTSD. Yeah, so I think Ville brought up the point that it's natural and normal and it doesn't make you a bad person to feel anger, downright hostility towards uh, your patient, especially if they are a bad person, they've done something terrible, they're a terrorist or they've, you know, they're the, the, the person who assaulted someone else or killed someone else. That's okay for you to have that reaction to accept it and then just kind of get on with giving, uh, being a professional and giving care, but not to beat yourself up over it. Yeah, I think we all sometimes suffer from empathy fatigue and that's been described as well, like when you're tired, when it's overwhelming or even when it's very, very quiet, you know, that lull in your concentration as well. So I think, like you say, it's, it's recognizing it in yourself, but also staying professional then. Yeah, Vile is one of our Finnish anesthetists, and uh, he's a big hunter as well. So I appreciate that he uh, brought up that emotional components of care. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Ishe Osfeld is um, a Special Operation Forces Director, Medical Director for the IDF, operating out of Tel Aviv. Now, he had some interesting learning points related to PTSD. I enjoyed his presentation. I mean, he was amazing in 2017, so I was looking forward to it. And, and he sort of landed running again with really good quality data. But some of his latest research has been around PTSD. Um, he was talking about the resilience of Israeli people in the face of ongoing terrorism and threat. And he was saying the way they've set up nine centers around the country that provide immediate social and psycho psychometric care to, to uh, victims. 
But then when they've been looking at some of the data and the incidence of PCSD that's followed some kind of acute stress, um, he was really shocked and he couldn't give an explanation. And this is about to be published and I think he's, he's looking for suggestions. But he found that those with minor injuries, if they had early support, actually got worse PTSD. And it was as high mm-hmm. as 30% in those with minor injury, which really shocked everybody because... In, in the more severely injured, it didn't seem to be quite as bad. And in the ones with no injuries that just, just presented at the centre, that it was certainly helpful. So that raised lots of questions about counselling and that kind of support early, which I think some of us have, have doubted in the past. I think we've found the same exact thing in, uh, uh, in American society where um, everyone thought it would be a good idea to have mandatory yeah. okay. critical incident <laughs> stress management, CISM or CISD. Part and parcel of that process or one of the learning points is that Yes, it can be helpful, but should always be voluntary. Absolutely. In other words, if the yeah. victim is interested and in seeking that sort of support or care, that it may be a benefit for them, but mandating it, in fact, can cause harm. How do you guys deal with your crews after a tough call? We have a number of medical directors and field supervisors here. After a tough call, what are some of the best practices that you have for you know, discussing good, good discussing the hot debrief? I think that's always important. Yeah. It may not tackle all the issues, but checking everybody's safe, everybody feels okay if there's any immediate issues. Um, but then I think for the big job, you've got to follow that up. Mm. Yeah, I think in England it usually helps having a cup of tea in the hand, mm. sitting back at base, you know, making sure everybody has, had a, everybody has had a wee and everybody's eaten something um, and it's ready for the next job because the last thing you really want is to be halfway through a hot debrief and you get this next shout and nothing's Mm. ready and now now you add sort of to the chaos adrenaline pump yeah yeah. so maybe even taking the crew out of service for uh, some time yeah absolutely yeah having been through I tell you you know uh, we had a fatal crash in my program in 2008 in dealing with again the mandatory stress debriefing versus all that and I I think uh, Christina Hernan brought it up after her experience with the Boston bombing you know, probably the best thing is to be able to be with people who know what you're, you know, who have gone through the same thing and uh, are going through the same emotions. And that was the most valuable thing, I think, is just hanging out with the rest of my crew and spending time for several days. It was far, far more valuable. The, the formal debriefing that, you know, the, the vendor sent in people and psychologists and all that, and it was, it was useless. So just spending time talking about it. One of the things that I learned at the helicopter after a bad call, I would call one of my physician friends who had nothing to do with the helicopter and run through the call and let him objectively tell me if I did right or wrong. And I couldn't approach my own medical director because then, you know, things could have gotten punitive. And so I guess if you have a service and you have an assistant medical director, if the person utilizes them, then they're out of the QAQI process and you can do that. And one of the other things I I want to mention about PTSD that we're finding with these active shooter events and why it's so important to get people out is the longer people stay, even if they're uninjured and they're on lockdown, it is developing PTSD because they are in the worst moments of their lives still in the absolute terror location. And the sooner we can get them Mm -hmm. out and get them into areas of relative safety. So you have 15 little ones locked down in a closet with a teacher who's telling them that I'm your best friend and maybe someday you'll see your parents alive. The sooner we can get them outside, the sooner we can stop that. And the only other thing I'll say is we have good data that's coming out right now that lockdowns are causing PTSD in our little ones. And we we are using lockdowns way, way, way too much. And so it's absolutely, I mean, we're having kids writing last wills and testaments and all kinds of stuff. Shooter drills also? Yes. Well, so no, these are just, these are preventative lockdowns. 
So oh. this is just like police are chasing someone two miles away. The school's going to go on lockdown. Oh, yeah. So they go on lockdown. Everyone hides, and they're hiding for two hours. And mm. we're having case after case after case where this is creating just destructive trauma in kids. And there was one of my friends, a forensic psychiatrist, and he had a kid referred to him who was eight years old and was starting to bed wet a lot. And he, the GP referred him, and he talked to the kid, and finally after four sessions, the kid revealed to him that he was worried that the lockdown would come and kill his parents at night. And so he didn't understand why they were doing lockdowns, but he was worried the lockdown was going to come and kill his parents. And so we've got to be careful because sometimes mm-hmm. the best of intentions are causing untoward consequences. And now we've been doing this long enough that we have the data showing that we're, we're doing this way too much. Yeah, two important points that I wanted to harp on is uh, the concepts of just culture and a culture of safety. So a lot of services are adopting the model of a culture of safety where even if you have an error, if you in good faith report it, it's non-punitive. And, you know, really the best approach as a medical director or a field supervisor is to look at the system. How can I make certain system level changes to try and prevent or preclude this from happening? Actually disclosing that a medical error occurred to the patient and apologizing for it. I think are, you know, not so revolutionary concepts, which we're just starting to employ with greater effect. Because, of course, we're humans and providers ourselves. I I did a lot of um, expert malpractice work for critical care transport, and I'm sure Mike has too. And when you look at everything at face value, it always looks like it's human error. But probably about ninety percent of the time, it's it's an organizational cultural error that led led places. to mistakes. Yeah. Yes, they were they were led into a position to make a bad decision. People don't just arbitrarily make bad decisions. So, typically, it always points back to organizational culture. It's allowing people to hold the hand up, though, isn't it? I mean, we know pilots can do it. You know, they they declare a mistake and then they're they're relatively immune from prosecution mm-hmm. within reason. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we need to be the same. You know, people need to not fear holding the hand up and going, "I screwed up." I, you know, and this is what happened. And this is what I've done, and and then go through the reflection and the learning and everything. Well, the only other thing I would put to that is. Um, Hospitals in the United States, when you declare a mistake, it's non-discoverable in litigation. But for EMS services, there are no laws that prevent that. If if you're a non-hospital-based helicopter service and you declare that you gave the wrong medicine, that is completely discoverable. In one sense, we're very litigious in the United States. And so there's almost a culture to to not, not report because it sets you up for litigation failure. So if we could get laws in place that say if you make a mistake that it'll save you from discovery at least, then we would see that. Hospitals have it. We just haven't done it. Yeah. And so one of the interesting uh, sequelae from that is hospital-based EMS systems actually have increased protections because they're thought of as an extension of the hospital. So the next phase of our afternoon dealt with a whole host of specific injury types and patterns. And that was penetrating trauma, including knives, stabbings, and neck injuries by Dr. Tom Koenig from the UK. Tactical medicine in mass casualty events, that was Dr. Matthew Langlois, who was actually one of the physicians who's a a sworn officer within the RAID, R-A-I-D, who responded to the Bataclan Parisian attacks um, several years ago. We had obstetric traumas and hysterectomies, as well as blast injuries. What are some of the takeaways that you guys have from that set of lectures? Well, the one that uh, I found fascinating, because we've always talked about recessive hysterotomies. I know in the United States, you know, so I, I wasn't aware in Finland that they had two successful. Now, they weren't traumatic arrests, I believe. But in both cases, it was a medical arrest of the mother with some delay, you know, because they always taught, what, in trauma, you have five minutes or four, so. Yeah, yeah four, four or five minutes. minutes. Yeah. And these were 20 minutes. 
and yet these children survived intact. You know, they were born premature and under very austere conditions. But uh, yeah, I, it's like wow. So this 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 is real. I was really impressed to meet. She managed to make a top cover call and get a response from an obstetrician. Yeah, credit to the obstetrician for make yeah, just do it. Because but, I don't think we get that response. No. No. <laughs> but equally, what she mentioned brings us back to you can do advanced procedures and simplify them right down. Because in her talk, she said, we didn't have much. Oh, right, we had yeah. a scalpel, our hands, and some cordlets. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and it's the same when we think of advanced procedures like pre-hospital thoracotomies, right? You have very little equipment and you do a very advanced procedure. And again, it cycles back right to what Mike was talking about. In his, in his lecture as well. Uh, so I, just a clarifying point here. So this is under the Franco-German uh, model of EMS. So these are uh, pre-hospital physicians who are responding to do these advanced procedures. That's right, yeah. yeah. I, I thought the afternoon was amazing. You know, if you... Because really? I had the opportunity to also in detail, because I was moderating, to read mm-hmm. through the, the CVs and things of yeah. these people, and I Googled most of them as well. And it's really incredible... The, uh, the type of speakers and the quality of speakers that this uh, this conference uh, attracted. Wow. I mean, they're all sitting in the room here with you know um, at the moment, but it's. It well, was the really was amazing, wasn't it? Because at, at the time, you know, she'd never done one before. Mm-hmm. You, you could clearly see the emotion there when she was describing oh, she the was. case. And we have to say that the, the mother had a non-survival injury, oh, yeah. uh, and and, and, you know, so and the bleeding. Injury, a massive, massive aortic. Yeah, I'm interested to read the paper. Uh, They did publish the case of two. So yeah, yeah, we'll work to link to that in the show notes as well. But it's a once in a lifetime, once in a career procedure, if that. The thing that struck me about that, yeah, was the um, (laughs) the decision gap. So going from knowing that you need to make a critical procedure to actually making the critical procedure, and here you have a physician responding who got correlation and confidence from an OB physician. Yeah. And so now you have to go back and look at all your other providers who do an ultra low frequency, ultra high risk procedure and what is the the interval gap that they go through. We see it in surgical crikes all the time. Sometimes we crike patients way too late yeah. and instead of, you know, how can we shorten that decision making process up, you know, whether it's through high fidelity simulation, whatever it is. So she was doing a once in a lifetime procedure and she's a physician and still got reassurance from another physician. And right. so that was what kind of struck me is, you know, what ultra low processes do I do that need to be done right now that, you know, I still want to get everyone in the room to shake their head yes and say this is what yeah. we need to do. That's going to be a very, very quick call. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're not going to be hanging on that phone. And that's the thing. So the person on the other end has just got to get exactly where you are and exactly what you're faced with and give yeah. you an immediate yes or no. But you see, that's why, you know, I... I'm maybe a little bit biased with the, you know, uh, British style of EMS, where the medical directors actually all of them have clinical experience. They've been in the ditch wow. with the people, uh, you know, uh, and they they know exactly like Mark says. If that phone call comes in, they they know what situation you're in, and that's why they can quickly say. And you know, even very advanced pre-hospital care systems like London's Air Ambulance still has that that sort of model if it's a junior you know someone who's just starting or it's a resident they they have a quick phone call to the consultant especially mm. especially in some specific procedures and like you say it, it might just be it's never really asking permission but it's having that confirmation and 
knowing that someone you're talking to actually knows where you are and what you're going through. Yeah, that supportive uh, environment is definitely clutch, especially as before you're about to embark on a procedure you may not have practiced that often. One thing that she did mention was that this is obviously a procedure to save mum first and foremost, Great point. and then possibly for baby. But in a, another podcast I'd listened to, where resuscitative hysterotomy was done, a lot of people in the room, I guess, were unaware that this was not... Um, the, you know, the reasons for it being done, that it was mm-hmm. not for baby, that it was to save mom. And they were fairly distraught when baby was taken out and clearly unsurvivable, far too premature, that nothing was done for the baby. Mm-hmm. And so they were just completely taken aback by that. So if any oh. of your listeners are ever involved in it or doing one, a quick, this is to save mom. This is not for baby. We will mm-hmm. try to, if the baby is at a certain age. However, our primary goal and our primary patient is mom. What did, what did she say? Removing baby increases cardiac output by 60 to 80%. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, effectively, effectively yeah. mom is not resuscitatable, which right. has got a baby yeah. of that gestation yeah. still right. in situ. Yeah. So if you don't yeah. deliver the baby, you're right. not going to resuscitate mom. Because mm. the yeah. placental bed is a mm. low flow bed, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and immediately once you remove that with the baby, you have, you know, you, uh, that bed is removed and you actually ought to transfuse probably the mum as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the key thing with, you know, with hysterotomy and thoracotomy, I think we've now reached the point where it's crystal clear when you should do it. There's still some grey areas, but there's these crystal clear areas. And I think what you may still want to do top cover is something like an amputation, for example, where there may be still an alternative approach or something. And that's where mm-hmm. top cover can be useful to have, maybe have more of a discussion rather than mm-hmm. a yes, no. Mm-hmm. And by top cover, you're referring to just a conversation with your commanding officer? Yeah. yeah. And, and as MJ says, it's got to be someone who gets it, someone who understands where you are and what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Now, what about blast injuries, penetrating traumas? Any additional takeaways there? They, they were all really good, weren't they? I mean, uh, as Great we said, reviews, Tom, yeah. Tom good, session on the stabbings in the neck was, was good just, review of anatomy. Yeah, and, it was a master uh, yeah. class from a master. I mean, it was yeah. it was just really really good. Yeah, uh, very straightforward, very simple, which is what we need because we're not trauma surgeons. Um, but also making it clear that you can you can make a difference in this area we all fear. You know, the stabbings head in the neck are terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, what does he call it? Uh, tiger country. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But the bottom line was still get them off the X, get them to the hospital. Even if you were a trained surgeon, you're not doing things for them in the field. You mm-hmm. need to get them to the hospital, to an operating room where mm-hmm. they can get definitive care. Yeah, and, you know, he showed a blood gas of a patient. That oh, was yeah. 6.4. I mean, it looked like if you showed that in an exam to anyone, they'd say this is unsurvivable. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that just, yeah. Yeah, that just shows how young trauma patients compensate and compensate and compensate and, you know, and survive if you do the right things for them. I think Dr. Langlois' uh, talk and development since the Bataclan raid on really moving patients off the X or out of the hot zone or out of the warm zone has been fantastic work since they do have, you know, tactical medics and physicians who are deploying. It was a theme that was highlighted over and over again yesterday, whether you call it the disaster gap or the therapeutic vacuum you know, the delay that is inherent in uh, treating these potentially uh, preventable deaths in the warm zone is really something as a society and America and European model, we need to figure out a better way to do it. I love the way he describes the doctor as the flow facilitator. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone can put a tourniquet on, anyone can do it. 
but it was the fact that you're there to, to make the decision. So you're bringing your experience, whether it's the triage process, they go first, how they're going. That was really powerful. Uh, I mean, it's always great to hear his, his, his description of things. And um, it's an amazing system they've got set up. And then in the last bit of the sessions in the afternoon, my good friend Knut Taxbro is also an anesthetist out of Norway and Sweden, did a brilliant review on burn care. And one of the things that has been a recent learning point for me is it's one of those pendulum swinging issues where we are always emphasized you need to secure the patient's airway before anything catastrophic happens. And we're now learning that we're likely over-intubating burn patients with some associated harm. Yeah, you know, that's something near and dear to my heart. I, I really have you know, studied burns and pre-hospital care of burns. And yes, in the United States at least, we see intubation of people you know, who have had flash burns. Yes, they have carbonaceous sputum and they have singed nasal hair and all that, but they're talking and everything. And I've seen things go wrong with a normal intubation. So I guess in what he brought up, certainly if it's an anesthetist or a controlled hospital environment and you're going to intubate them, typically no harm, no foul. But if it is in the field, depending on the experience and training of the paramedic in the field, this is in the U.S., you know, th- things could go terribly wrong. So It's it may very, be a very hard thing to write guidance for, though. Um, I'm sure many of us have tried. And I think that the fear of getting it wrong and missing the patient that comes in with the swollen airway. But I think if you, if you, if you aren't going to intubate, well, at the very least, get, get some nasal airways in, get some kind of airway protection that we can then work with. It gives us something to work with anesthetically when they come in. But it, it, yeah, I, I, he showed several sets of guidelines there and, and they were all good. Uh, but they were all different. Right. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> yeah. Denver, and, and the idea of escherotomies, too, he was talking about. So, you know, escherotomies rarely, I mean, need to be performed before six to eight hours after mm-hmm. injury. Circumferential burns and with fluid resuscitation, yes, you can get swelling and compartment syndrome. Um, you know, there are some cases where they, they need to be performed early, but a lot of the studies show that, that escherotomies performed outside of a burn center are often done incorrectly and incompletely. Yeah, burns is, it's like you say, Mark, it's one of those tricky things, you know. Do you give them fluid? Don't you give them fluid? Do you intubate them? Don't you intubate them? Do you cool them down? Do you prevent hypothermia? You know, it's, and I think because, you know, single stab to the chest is pretty predictable what's going to happen there. But burns are this almost evolving thing. You know, whatever you do, you can either make them worse or you can possibly potentially make them better hmm. so it is it is tricky to write guidelines for yeah. and and like many things burns care in hospital is being so regionalized in most places i'm not sure if it's the same in oh, america same. but oh, it's in it's, canada it's, it's in in the uk yeah. so a lot of people even in hospital don't have that expertise to to deal with birds. general surgeons used to take care of you know just non-significant birds you know five ten percent now Almost any burn, I tell you, you know, is referred to the burn center for definitive care. Um, Certainly in the UK, it's improved our outcomes. You know, there's some amazing survivors now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially specialist burn centers. Head and neck related to any overlying any joint, if it's circumferential. Oh, yeah. Hands Children. are a big thing. Hands you know, and for feet. Function yeah, and disability. Yeah. Yeah. Major, yeah. major burns, yeah. yeah. All right, last but not least, I had the privilege of talking about a novel concept which my colleague Mike actually introduced me to at the World Trauma Symposium. But the use of vehicles as weapons of mass destruction has 
very unfortunately become increasingly common uh, as a mode of attack, you know, both domestically in the U.S. as well as certainly in Europe, as we've seen through propaganda magazines. Anybody can go out and rent a large truck or um, a cargo-carrying van, and the formula that we have to remember is kinetic energy equals one-half mass times velocity squared. So if you have a heavy vehicle and are at, have a distant traveling speed, your potential for doing significant damage as a lone wolf can be tragic. I think you brought that home so well in terms of this is this is so accessible. Minimal preparation. They can, as you said, they can almost go down to the local hire place and just pick their vehicle and pick their pick their weapon. Mm. Um, and then the video you showed at the beginning, obviously it was a simulation, but um, it just highlighted to all of us you know, how many casualties you're suddenly going to be faced with and spread over such a long distance, and how daunting that can be. Oh yeah, and you know, as a as a human being, I find it quite disconcerting, right? You don't need to be close to people who like guns or fires or, you know, this, there's cars everywhere. Especially, you know, traveling, you're very often in, you know, unknown pedestrian areas and it's not a historic thing. You know, um, we had one of the presentations that was just from August in Barcelona. It's, uh, it's quite frightening, I think. But equally, you know... Giving in to the fear is probably not the way to go, um, but seeing how we can deal with these things, and I'm sure you know, the governmental agencies and the um, tactical teams and things are looking at things. like I was thinking, like maybe they can have like an EMS pulse that just like stops it. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, so Star Trek sort of things. But um, um, Yeah, but that's truly, in fact, in development. Yeah, so some, yeah. Yeah. some of the solutions... See, they should have just asked me. I <laughs> yeah. could have said, like, there you go. <laughs> well, just think, EMS pulse no caps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just think about it. You know, with any other terrorist thing, if they're building bombs or amassing ammunition... So they have to be very secretive and they have to worry about it. And most of these guys are no, they're going to be taken out, they're going to be dead. So, But their mission could be compromised. But unlike that, yeah, anyone can rent a big truck. And what I learned that I'm definitely going to take home with me um, to my, as a trauma team lead uh, to my center is, Mike talked about it too, basically when it's intentional motor vehicle and intentional mass casualty shootings that the patients are much more injured than just I go out, I'm mad at a particular person, shoot them, or I accidentally hit a, a pedestrian. That the, the, the pattern of injury is different, that the ISS is much more severe, and I hadn't really thought of that, and I wouldn't have necessarily prepared for that. It's incredible we have the literature on these. It's unfortunate that they become so common that we actually have retrospective meta-analyses looking at the injury patterns from intentional vehicular assault. And again, indeed, the ISS scores are significantly higher in those patients' populations compared to an incidental, non-intentional pedestrian struck. Yeah, because people normally probably try and brake, you know. Deceleration. Yeah, yeah. deceleration. It's not really how hard you get hit, it's how fast you stop, right? So that's that impact at speed that really gets you. And the logistics of this type of scene are Mm. so complex and something that we do not routinely prepare for. So, of course, when we think of MCI, okay, I'm setting up command. I'm going to be the incident commander. I'm dispatching all these additional resources. Just tell me where to go. Mm. But what happens when your scene is over one mile long? Mm -hmm. Where exactly are you dispatching your ambulances? Is the scene safe? How exactly are you going to deploy your resources? It's such a complex thing to deal with, um, especially if you get into areas where, you know, what we call soft targets, where pedestrians can really essentially be mowed down. I love that comment that you made about um, if you're making a pedestrianized area, 
make it truly safe and pedestrianised and just a few concrete blocks doesn't do it, a few big boulders doesn't do it. I mean, that was, that was really important because you see them and you think, oh, I'm pretty safe here, but clearly you're not against a vehicle of that size with that much energy. I think the other thing you have to look at is when you're going to something like Los Ramblas, I'm sure just about everyone here has probably been to Barcelona, so there's a lot of people there already. And so when you go to Bastille Day, there's a lot of people. So you're looking at an incident that spread over a mile in Nice and over you know a quarter mile or so at Las Ramblas. So you're trying to get resources in, but you have tens of thousands of people uh-huh. who are already there. Right. And so not only are you trying to get your resources in, but you have massive crowd management that you have to deal with. And like the theme has been from all of this is... Where's the second attack coming from? Where's the third attack coming from? Where's the fourth attack? And I think he, he went over that in, in Barcelona about their vehicles staging right next to the attacker's vehicle and you know trying to keep in mind that, you know first of all, do we recognize that this is a terrorist attack or is this a drunk driver or is this an elderly driver? Is this, yeah, is this some accidental? And none of us want to recognize that it's a terrorist event right away. And by the time we do, we realize that we've staged all of our resources and assets right on top of the problem. Thinking of all of these events, you know, all of the mass casualty events as well, you, you have to also think about those spontaneous responders, the people who are in the crowd who's then suddenly faced with people all around them dying. And, you know, some of them want to help, but some of them might be scared or might not know what to do. And um, and that comes back to the totally uninjured people who also suffer these consequences. And you made a, a, a good um, comment, uh, Mike, in, in some of our discussions afterwards about you know the relationship that you have with the injured person can maybe affect how you as a spontaneous responder respond, right? Um, and I always wonder if there's not an opportunity there to you know, help the general public as these things become more and more common to just be comfortable in offering almost buddy help you know and I and I know the stop the bleeding campaigns have really tried to do some of that but I, I'm wondering if there isn't that first chain link in survival that we cannot um, help as medical professionals probably buff up or lift up I think that's that's that's, that's what I took away from the Las Vegas one is you know more than seventy off duty law enforcement, fire EMS, and military personnel stayed and became I don't want to use the word secondary responders, but became secondary responders. And so you almost have to look at that in your planning as having a deputy incident commander manage your resources who are there and are trained and you can put them to work very very effectively maybe you're uh, another resource commanders you know working with your citizen bystanders but you're going to have a lot of off-duty people who are coming to help and obviously we can learn from our, our israeli colleagues about how they kind of manage this but you know we we see this a lot and we need to manage it and be effective at managing it because mm-hmm. they are there. They are hands there. They're not people that have to come from far away. Because I think what I took from a lot of these is that in, in these sort of mass casualty events, medical help is coming, but it can take up to half an hour sometimes for them to just be there and to evacuate the first casualties. And, you know, I, I thought if, if you're ever in that situation where you're shot or stabbed or you're in one of these events, you must feel totally helpless, Right. Because you know people are coming, but it feels like it's taking ages for them mm. to get there. And when you read back on some of the testimonies of the 7-7 bombings and things like that, that's always what people recall. It's like, why did we wait so long? Where were the people coming from? And 
and there are many people still able to help and I think it's like you say managing that and trying to empower that somehow I think that's a really key thing I mean to, you know um, it's so easy for us to get so excited about hysterotomy and all these other things mm-hmm. but and, and just training the public in some really simple things is not very exciting you know and yet look at cardiac resuscitation you know look at seattle and now the bystander cpr mm-hmm. amazing yeah and the and good think, sam app and mm-hmm. things mobilizing yeah. people and, and yeah. you know the resources there and people want to help they're not all running away and as you say they're already there and it's going to be a long time before the professionals turn up mm-hmm. so i think we've got a duty to train people and get mm-hmm. to get them and give them the skills and empower mm-hmm. them to help i think the biggest word you said is helplessness and we've, we've got to get that word away so make sure the community and everyone there doesn't feel helpless in these mm-hmm. situations. They know what to do. They know they know how to be helpers to us. Mm-hmm. And so once it's, you know, it's the old go boil water and get me some towels for the husband, you know, when his wife is, you know, do something. And all of a sudden, you know, they have a mission. They have they're a task. Powers. They're empowered and, mm-hmm. and they're no longer a victim. They're now a survivor. And there's yeah. a huge difference. Absolutely. Well said. And I think just to uh, put the finishing touches on the podcast in terms of next steps, uh, empowering and preparing our communities further and just teaching simple, basic skills can be incredibly life-saving. But then also working together as an international community to discuss these issues and challenges that we're all facing now and to work cohesively and in concert to try and mitigate these threats, which unfortunately are becoming increasingly paramount in modern-day society. And with that... This is Mike Klumpner, Mike Gloria, MJ Slabber, Lilani Doyle, Mark Forrest, Mike Abernathy, and Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour. <laughs>